Well, good morning. Uh, Pastor Jathan and Melissa are away this weekend visiting Paige down in Arizona uh, for a parents weekend down there. So I have the privilege of uh, introducing our speaker, Al Oliver, to you this morning. I pulled this off the website. I think it's current. A Southern California native, Al attended Cerritos College and then UCLA. After a brief stint in the National Football League, I think with the LA Rams, is that right? Um, Al graduated from Talbot Theology Seminary, Theological Seminary, excuse me, in 1980 with a Master of Divinity in Bible Exposition. From there, he served as a teacher, counselor, and teaching pastor for a number of years until he and his wife were both diagnosed with cancer. After a difficult encounter with their cancer surgeries, the Oliver family left professional ministry in 1989 for a season of healing and recovery. Al then worked in his family's business and was eventually promoted to president and CEO of that business. He later returned to pastoral ministry as a transitional pastor, filling the pulpit for, the churches, for churches in between uh, pastors. Uh, I first met Al when he joined the Visalia Rescue Mission as interim director in July of 2014. God's hand on Al was evident in that Al's experience in working with churches in transition prepared him to lead the mission through a season of transition. He was eventually hired as the full-time executive director of the Visalia Rescue Mission on April 1st, 2016, where he continues to serve today. Al has been married to his wife for 40 plus years, I assume now. Uh, the, they have two children, Matthew and Amber, four grandchildren. In his free time, Al enjoys saltwater fishing, especially in the Sea of Cortez. Al is no stranger to, to AGC as he spoke about three years ago, I believe, here. Um, also, Al is, is a little taller than I, so you might get a vision of what David and Goliath might look like. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome, Al. Here's the picture. <laughs> yeah. Why do you get to be David? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what did Will Chamberlain say? Nobody, nobody cheers for Goliath. Yeah. <laughs> well, good morning. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to take a little bit of a, a different approach. Uh, typically, I would take a, a scripture passage and uh, try to exhaust everything out of it that I possibly could. Uh, I don't have that much time because the passage is long, and, and I wanted to share with you, um, use 1 Peter 2, which was read this morning, sort of as a framework um, to talk about some new directions we're taking at, at uh, Visalia Rescue Mission. And I hope that this will be an encouragement to you because a lot of the stuff that we are learning over there and doing over there is really transferable to everyday life. I found uh, working at this um, has really just enhanced and sharpened my focus in my own spiritual life. So thank you for letting me come and uh, share that with you today. I also wanted to say I, I appreciated just this, a couple of side comments that I heard this morning. I, I grew up in a Reformed uh, household and uh, grew up in a, in a very um, highly catechized uh, 
environment where we memorized a lot of scripture and the Heidelberg Catechism and spent a lot of time with that. And um, I appreciate the reference to uh, Reformation Day. I remember uh, spending all, a lot of time as a kid uh, celebrating Reformation Day, which I think is one of the more underappreciated. That and Ascension Day, I think, are the most underappreciated um, ce uh, celebrations in the church. And so I've, I would sure like to see that come back, so let me commend you uh, for that. I'd, I'd like to start by just saying about two years ago, uh, at by Sawyer Rescue Mission, I had been praying about uh, the direction of where we're going, and uh, we had spent a lot of time um, just recasting a lot of the things that we had been doing, and uh, the Lord's hand was in it um, really over the last eight years. I've been married for 48 years to my wife, so I've been at the mission eight years now. It seems like just a, um, a blink of an eye, but... Um, I was with a board one night and uh, we had gone through our normal hour and a half examination of our financial statements and uh, reviewing all of the um, operations of the mission, which are all necessary things. But I said to the board, I said, hey, um, is this the only thing we ought to be doing? I mean, it's necessary. Uh, you, you need to pay attention to what you're doing in terms of uh, managing and stewarding the things that God has given you. And we, we spent a lot of time going over that and developing um, a lot of reports and a lot of meticulous detail about how we do what we do and whether or not we're using the, the gifts that God has given us to, uh, to the fullest extent. So I, I, I said, you know, I, I think that something is missing. We ought to be reviewing and celebrating um, how exactly we are doing what we say we're doing. Now, when I was with you last time, I shared with you that we, uh, the three uh, aspects of our ministry are rescue, which is our, our rescue aspect. It's food and shelter and um, just the basic needs to get people out of the elements and get them uh, hopefully back uh, into a living situation. Our second uh, aspect is what we call our our um, our recovery, uh, which is a one-year uh, residential recovery program. And uh, we want people to be able to confess Jesus Christ. We want people to understand the dynamics of spiritual life. We want them to understand uh, how they can stay off drugs and be responsible employees. And the last part of our... So it's rescue recovery, and then the last one was restoration, where we have uh, accountability and we, we work with people to reconcile their, their, uh, their lives with, uh, with God and that they have a fellowship that they can be part of, that they have some accountability, they reconcile with family and so on and so forth. But I said, how, how are we measuring that? How do we know we're doing what we say we're doing? And so uh, one of my board members, who's rather outspoken, I appreciate him for that. Sometimes he annoys me, but also, but he, he's rather outspoken. But also, he's a, the Lord has put him there for that very reason, uh, to ask the hard questions. And he says, well, what do you think we ought to be doing? And I said, well, the, the real thing for me is I read the New Testament. Um, as shepherds and leaders, we ought to be developing Christian character that 
not only in our graduates from our program, but also in our staff and in the lives of our board, everyone from top to bottom throughout the organization, we are a gospel mission. Is that immediately evident to everyone who sees us and knows us? And I had the answer to the question. I said, right now, no. Is that something that is immediately evident in everything we say, everything we do, how we perform, whether it's in our thrift stores or whether it's in our maintenance or whether it's in our building projects or is that immediately evident in every place? And the answer was no. We're doing a lot of good works, but what are we doing to develop Christian character? And so this board member challenged me and I undertook a kind of a two-year study of trying to distill down into uh, a few short phrases what it means to develop Christian character. And so I started with the New Testament, which is that big. And how do you distill it down into something, a, a metric that we can say, okay, is this happening? Is that happening? And how are we doing with that? Are we being faithful to what the Lord has asked us to do. And so just recently, uh, in the last six months, we came up with, um, after a couple years of, of working on it, distilling it down, I came up with, uh, for our purposes, and again, I'm not saying that this should apply to everyone, but this is what we're using at Visalia um, Rescue Mission. I'm going to read them to you. And then I'm going to use First Peter 2 a little bit just to sort of uh, illustrate that a little bit. Again, I'm not going to go through a, a complete exegesis of it, but I want to use that to illustrate it. The five things that we said uh, contribute and develop in Christian character, and these are all on a spectrum, but the first one is spiritual maturity. Uh, the second one, you can write them down in your blanks if you want to. Spiritual maturity is the first one, and we're going to go through that just briefly and explain to you uh, what we mean by that when we say that. The second one um, we think is important is emotional resilience. Uh, that's something that's short today in our society. Everyone seems to be in a rage all the time. And so emotional resilience is something that we think is uh, part of a spiritual, uh, spiritual fruit. Uh, the phrase, be angry but do not sin, is a, is a big one. The third one that we said um, is a development of Christian character is mental flexibility. And again, one of the things we find in uh, people who have been caught in homelessness and drug addiction is the real brittleness of their personality or the inability to think creatively. And that is all dependent on their emotional resilience, which is independent on their on their spiritual maturity. And so we we're creating a sort of a circular metric where you start with spiritual maturity at the top, you move, move to emotional resilience, then to mental flexibility. And then the fourth one we wanna see is work excellence. Um, and then the fifth one um, is what we call the stewardship of our bodies or the stewardship of self. You hear a lot about self-love. We think that is a little bit of a well, more than a, a misnomer. The idea is that God has given us a body for a certain amount of time. 
Uh, we're just renters in this body. We're going to give it back, and God's going to give us it brand new. And so the stewardship of the body that we have right now is something that God commands us to take care of. And so we, if you can picture those, I should have brought a, a slide, but they're in a circle. It's spiritual maturity, emotional resilience, mental flexibility, um, work ex- uh, mental flexibility, work excellence, stewardship of the body, and then back again to uh, spiritual maturity. And so that's the metric and that's the tool that we're using to try to help lead our people out of that addictive mindset, out of that um, despairing mindset. One of the things I've realized is working in the rescue, rescue mission for so long is the thing we're suffering the most from uh, when we talk to our residential recovery is bad theology. The way they think about themselves, the way they think about God has been so scrambled and so um, misused and stuff they hear on television, they stuff they hear from all over the place. I have a, a class that I teach on Tuesdays. It goes from 1.15 till, it's supposed to go from 1.15 to 3. Sometimes they don't let me out of there until 4. But they're just asking all of these questions about the Bible and about God and the amazing stuff that they've got in their heads. Um, you have to unwind all that to give them a real clear perspective of what the scriptures are and what they teach and who God is and what spiritual life is about. And so it's a, it, you find out that a year is not a lot of time to invest in them. You know, I'm really more and more grateful for parents uh, who are Christians who have a lifetime to teach their kids about God and about the gospel and who Christ is because they've got that firm foundation. We spend a lot of time at the mission just trying to unwind a lot of bad theology in their heads. Well, I'm, I'm digressing too far because I want to talk a little bit about um, how we got there and what each one of these things mean, and hopefully it can be a um, blessing to you. So um, look with me at First Peter 2. Uh, starting in verse uh, 1. Uh, Peter, who lived everything he ever preached, um, he says, put away, uh, literally it means to throw off, uh, like you throw a coat off, all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He's saying that in response to uh, the good news that he was talking about in chapter 1. He says, all right, in response to that, all of this stuff that characterizes a disobedient life, a life that is full of, uh, full of um, deceit and sin and despair, throw that off. Well, the big question is, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? And he gives us the answer, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk or the milk of the word that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's a real interesting concept here. The newborn infant is the word nepioi and it means little, little baby infant. And the, and the picture he is giving there, I don't know how many of you, well, many of you have had experience with little infants that immediately when they're born, they, they have that suckling um, instinct, right? Even if you tickle the, their cheek, they'll turn toward the source of the food. 
And this is what he's saying the word long for. You have to be just like a little baby infant that doesn't know anything else except I need to be fed. And he's saying, it's, it has to, if you've ever had a little baby who's desperately hungry, you know, ha, 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 looking for the food. I mean, you've, you've seen that before. At least my kids did that. I still do get that when I'm around In-N-Out Burgers. But, uh, <laughs> but I think the point is he's saying long for the pure milk of the word. That's how you throw off all this other stuff. You replace it with something else. He says that you may grow up into salvation or grow up with respect to salvation. Salvation is a big subject. When people talk about salvation, they generally say, well, it means that um, if I accept Jesus and then when I die, I get to go to heaven. And that's kind of the sum total. That's a very, very small part of it. You know, salvation is not only what God is doing in my life, but what God is doing cosmically. Salvation is not only my justification, but it's also our sanctification. It's also our, the joy and the, and the hopefulness of our future glorification before God. I know you're familiar with all these terms. And the more you know about that and you know how much, how, how interrelated they are, they sort of displace all of the stuff in your mind that takes you away from that joy and that confidence knowing salvation. Uh, you look in the, in the mind of a homeless person and an addicted person, they're just desperate for their next meal or their next uh, hit of drugs or something because that's the only thing that can calm them down. They lived in a perpetual state of anxiety. We call it having all the lights and sirens on all the time. And if you've got all the lights and sirens on all the time, it's hard to be a calm, directed joyful person and so the way you do that is you distract them from that and get them into the pure milk of the word have them long for it why that you may grow up one of the most tragic things you'll ever see is a 45 year old adult with the mind of an infant. It's tragic. Now, we don't know why God does that, but it, it's difficult. The point is that God wants us to long for the pure milk of the word, to grow us up. It's something we can do if we decide to stay in infancy. We're making our own lives more difficult. Long for the pure milk of the word. That you may grow up with respect to salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And he changes the metaphor. Now that you have tasted the good milk of the word and coming to him, he moves from little infant babies and he moves to stones. Now, and you read in the New Testament, there are three different 
three or four different words for stone. One, you've heard the word Petra, which means great big rock. If you, if you look at, say, El Capitan, that would be a Petra, huge giant rock. If you have a, like a little rock or a little pebble, that would be a Petros. But there's another kind of stone that is referenced here. It's the word lithos. And the lithos is not a stone that you find in nature. It's a, you take an, uh, a lithos or a, a petros or a, petra, or a petra and you chisel it into a lithos. It's a carved stone. And the value of these stones is not in the inherent value of the rock itself. It's the amount of work that has been put into it. And so they become very, very valuable. That's the word he is using here. And so you go into a quarry, and I have some experience in mining. You go into a quarry, and we would dig out big stones, or sometimes we'd use um, explosives to you know, disturb them and dig them out. But if you take a stone and you want to make it valuable, you invest hours and hours and hours of chipping and engraving and to turn it into something extraordinarily value. That is how God sees us. The amount of work that he puts into us, he tap, chip, tap, chip, he chisels us. And he says, literally, he says, you come to him, and what God is going to start doing, he's going to start chiseling you. And he's going to start making you smooth, and he's going to start putting in infinite or, or these, these, these beautiful engravings that make you more and more valuable. It's, you come to us, you come to Jesus as a kind of a just misshapen rock, and he'll start chiseling away. It's the same word that the disciples used when Jesus was in the last week of his earthly life. He was walking through Jerusalem and the disciples were asking him about the kingdom. You know, he had just had the, the triumphal entry and they was asking him about the kingdom. And they were looking at these stones that were in the temple walls and it were in the walls of the city. And they were just marveling again and says, wow, look at these intricate things, how valuable they are. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you see those? Yeah, there's not going to be one of them left when, when uh, God gets finished with this place. But these, these stones, these valuable stones, he says, you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, and precious. You know, when the stone is chosen, it's still misshapen. But when he's finished with it, it's all smooth and engraved, and it becomes precious. That's what God does to us. He chips away at us, knocks off all the rough parts, all the crooked parts, and makes us precious. It's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, it's precious. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and the next metaphor now is a house. Now you're being made into a building. 
a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. The word is lithos. A cornerstone. Meaning that, okay, I'm laying down the perfect cornerstone, and if you know what a cornerstone is, in, in really in, in all construction, you always have a mark that you start from that is the right height and is the right level. And when you pull your string lines for your building, I have a contractor's license, I've done this many times, um, you make sure that it all references back to that mark. Those of you who are in construction know that, that you have to get the house right first and it all has to be referenced off of one mark. It's the right elevation and the right amount of perfection in terms of it being level. That's how you start it. And he says, I'm laying in Zion stone, a cornerstone, a cho- cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame's a big deal in, um, in homeless ministry. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So for us who believe, we have confidence in the stone that's laid down. This is what we're talking about when in, term, in terms of developing Christian character. We want to be like Christ, chosen and precious. He is our reference point. But to those who don't believe, he's rejected. But everyone is still going to be measured by Jesus, whether you believe or not believe. That's what Peter is saying here. And it becomes to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so he goes through the the rest of this, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this because we're going to run out of time. What time do I need to be done, Bruce? Okay, now that's dangerous. <laughs> 11 o'clock? 11.30? Well, I won't go that long. Okay. All right. The first thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to come back to this passage a little bit, but I just wanted to sort of lay for you, again, the foundation of what we're trying to do, the, the cornerstone in terms of developing Christian character. When we brought this to the board... We said, okay, when we're going to meet every month with the board, getting back to the whole idea, are we just talking about financial performance? Are we just talking about organizational performance? Or are we missing something? And we said, we're missing something. And the thing that we're missing is the development of Christian character. So we came up with these five tests that we measure not only our residents and people but ourselves and the premise is that if these five things are evident in our entire organization from the board right down to our guests and residents then we know that that is the environment in which the gospel can grow the gospel can be heard the gospel can have the life-changing implications for the people who come to us who are lost And so we want this to permeate our entire organization. And uh, we actually have incorporated these things into our hiring practices. We've incorporated them into our employee evaluations. 
Now, we're not trying to become the behavior police. Uh, we're not trying to create a new, a new sort of legalism, but we're, we're, we're putting together a way to say, okay, let's really be honest with ourselves before the Lord and say, are we really reflecting what God wants us to do? So the first one is spiritual maturity. Okay, how do you measure spiritual maturity? Is there like a thermometer or something that you do or how much you're involved or what is it? And so we came up with these things. First of all, is to understand the gospel. We want to make sure that every single one of our employees, everyone on the board, uh, understands and can articulate the gospel without reference to themselves. Normally when you ask someone, um, what's the gospel, they'll start telling you your testimony. Everybody has a testimony who believes in Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. But that's not the gospel. That's the result of the gospel. And so we say to our people, said, can I, without reference to myself, articulate the biblical gospel actually as to what it is? The New Testament tells us, uh, Romans 1.16, 1 Corinthians 2, the gospel has its own power. It is the power of God. Okay, what is it? We say it's three things. I stole these from R.C. Sproul. First of all, it's the correct understanding of the person of Christ. That he is a member of the Trinitarian God of the Old and New Testaments. That Jesus is God in human flesh. That is the person of Jesus Christ. That he is truly human, that he is truly divine, and that he is the sovereign of the universe. He is the reigning sovereign of the universe. I tell my folks in chapel all the time, think about this for a moment. When Christ ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father, it's right there in the Apostles' Creed, Right now, there is a human being running the universe. Have you ever thought about that? There's somebody with a body and a beating heart running the universe. That's what it means to be at the right hand of God the Father. You know, when the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. And they said, no, 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 come over here, hang, grab onto me, give me something to eat. I'm flesh and blood, just like you. He ascended into heaven. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of power. He said in John 5, he says, the Father has given all things into the hands of the Son. He's in charge. He's running the universe. That is the person of Christ. You want to get a really clear vision of the person of Christ just read the first four chapters of Revelation when Jesus sees I mean when John sees the resurrected Christ you know his his eyes are a flame of fire his sharp two-edged sword come out of his mouth his hair is white like wool he's shining in brilliance that caused John to fall at his feet as a dead man that is our risen Lord that is the person of Jesus Christ people get that wrong. That's one of the assaults on the gospel. People 
will try to deceive you about who Jesus really is. And so our people need to know the person of Christ. The second one of understanding the spiritual maturity is or the gospel is the work of Christ, the atonement. Um, you've heard the word atonement before, right? Um, the word atonement was actually invented by John Wycliffe. He couldn't find a way to translate the word hilasterion out of the New Testament, and so he made one up. He called it atonement. How is it that man and God and man can be reconciled or to become at one, the atonement? God did it. The work of Christ and the reconciliation of all things to himself. Again, these are the things that we need to be able to articulate apart from our own testimony that are the components of the gospel that are necessary for us to know. And so it's the person of Christ, it's the work of Christ, is the atonement. Atoning for sins, for sinners, and the reconciling of all of the universe to himself. It's the summing up of all things in Christ, if you recall that from Ephesians. And so the third thing that is understanding the gospel is the benefits to the repentant sinner. The benefit to the repentant sinner. The solution of the problem of humanity, which is sin. Redemption. The indwelling Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to follow Christ truly. Discernment. Overcoming temptation. Living as a credible witness of Jesus Christ. And so the components of the gospel are the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the benefit to the repentant sinner. If you can articulate those things clearly from the scripture, that is part of a necessary part of spiritual maturity. And, and we're finding that in this day and age where the gospel is not clearly preached, people cannot articulate those things. We want our people to be art articulate in those sorts of things. And so when they leave us for a year, they need to know that's what the gospel is. And secondly, they need to be a credible witness of that. A coherent, objective recitation of the gospel is necessary. First Corinthians 15, one through six, you've heard this, and I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then he said, and last of all, he appeared to me. So for people to have spiritual maturity, they need to know the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the benefit to the repentant sinner. The second thing we want them to have is, all right, what is my personal testimony of the gospel in my life? How have I changed? 
Can people see that there is dis- distinctive change in my life or am I just the same as I always was? That's spiritual maturity. The second thing we um, want to teach on our metric is emotional resilience. You know, Peter said, put it off. There are two things that are really interesting that the Bible says to put on and put off. Put off um, malice, deceit, hypocrisy. Put off the old man. But put on Jesus Christ. Basically, he's using the term to like you, you wear a coat or, or a suit of clothes. Wear Jesus like a suit of clothes. Now, that's not being hypocritical. That's being obedient. A lot of times people will say, well, you're not being authentic. You're being hypocritical. No, if you want to see the authentic me, you don't want to know the authentic me. The more I look inside, the darker and darker it gets. That's the truth about me. But when I put on Jesus Christ and I'm commanded, what I become is my character begins to change. You know, that that lithos that's being tapped and chipped away, that's being chiseled away. Suddenly, I start acquiring uh, those characteristics. I don't mean just me personally. I'm just using I in, in the sense of all of us. Emotional resilience, we focus on particularly anger. We found out that anger, anxiety, depression pretty much are all the same things. Now, it's not a necessarily always a sin. I, I get angry. I um, am depressed sometimes. Um, but the scripture says to us, be angry, but do not sin. That is, to me, has been always one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. Uh, I've never really heard a clear understanding of that. It's an allusion to Psalm 37. Uh, James talks about the same thing. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Basically, you look at Jesus, you never see him lose it in front of his enemies, ever. He's always in control. He only gets angry about the things when the righteousness of God is assaulted. But he never has a personal outburst of anger and rage that has become so prevalent in our society today and particularly in the homeless and addicted community. They all are hanging on just by they're white knuckling everything. They're hanging on by the edge and just the smallest little thing will just set them off. You've heard the term triggering, right? Yeah, I, I um, don't particularly like that term uh, because it sort of implies that something you're doing, me, you're doing is making me feel this way. Um, if you are a mature believer, Second Peter says we have all we need for life and godliness. It's all there. And we can learn when we put on Christ to become emotionally resilient, develop emotional shock absorbers. Don't lose it when you are confronted with difficult circumstances. 
Work to understand the situation, not react to it. Our society is losing it right now. People are losing their capability for rational thought because all the lights and sirens are on all the time. One of the things we found out from um, uh, studying about trauma and brain chemistry is that when, when you're confronted with an emergency situation, you immediately go into the, they call it the fight, flight, or freeze sort of thing, and you can't think. I mean, everyone has had this situation, right? Where you've been in a car accident or something serious has happened, immediately your body goes into this, okay, you're not able, you, you can only react. But that's only for emergencies. How'd you like to be like that all the time? That's what it's like to be an addicted and homeless person. Develop those emotional shock absorbers. I tell my staff, never, ever, 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 ever respond to your fellow teammates or the people you minister to out of frustration and anger. Don't do that. You have the ability to respond in a godly, resilient way. Now that's hard. And it is not something that comes naturally to anybody. It is an acquired skill. One of the things I learned playing football especially playing an offensive tackle, is that I had to learn how to do two opposite things at once. One of the things, one of the hardest things you do in professional football, really in any sport, is offensive line pass blocking because you have to back up at the same time attack. Backing up and attacking at the same time is not something that you have to back up and stay between you and the really fast, strong guy who's trying to get the quarterback and keep him away from and and block him so that he can't get there. The brain doesn't work that way. And you have to train yourself. It's more of a mental exercise to train yourself to do that. And I realize that you just don't get out there and do it without training over and over and over again. It's the same thing with emotional resilience. It's the same thing of be angry but do not sin. You feel angry? Okay, never, ever, ever lose it, especially in front of unbelievers. But don't do it with the people you work with. Maintain your comportment all the time. I'll tell you one thing. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. That's why I tell, this is when we get to number five, the stewardship of the body. Um, one of the things we, we've learned is that it, um, when you do that and are training yourself, you exhaust all of your neurochemicals that, that keep, your, keep yourself regulated, all the stuff like serotonin and dop- dopamine and all that. God's made us wonderfully. Uh, he's given us our own little um, chemical balance capability in our heads that our body regulates. And in order to regulate that, there are two things that you need to do to get them back in balance. Uh, One is sleep and one is exercise. Uh, Imagine that. And so, (laughs) imagine how that works, yeah. But in the meantime, be emotionally resilient. 
The third thing that flows from that is what we call mental flexibility. Um, this feature is commonly overlooked. Uh, when I came to the mission nine years ago, many of our guests and our residents and even many of our employees had what we call the prison mindset. Uh, the prison mindset is basically, I'm just here to do my time and I'm gonna put my head down and I'm gonna comply uh, but as soon as I get out, I'm going to do what I want to do. And when I spoke with the staff and the board, I said, we are not doing any favors to anybody by letting them stay there. I think a lot of times uh, that, that goes into our daily lives. We just don't have the mental flexibility that we need uh, to be able to think creatively and to do what God wants us to do uh, tomorrow, we get stuck in this rut all the time. When you are emotionally charged all the time, you can't be um, mentally flexible. We would see this um, in a lot of our graduates, you would see this sort of cognitive gap where they would know what to do, but they couldn't get from here to there because they just had their head downs and they were living in such despair. They didn't have any joy in life. And you, when you don't have any joy in life, it's hard to be creative and it's hard to be hopeful. And when I read the New Testament, I don't see that as part of the fruit of the Spirit of despair and living in a rut. We want our people to come out being people who are not only resilient, but they have the flexibility in their mind not only to solve problems, but also to live joyfully. One scriptural example that I found in this is in Matthew 22. The Pharisees were trying to uh, get Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus in what he said. They're trying to catch him in a political bind uh, with the Romans. And so they thought they had him. And they came to Jesus and says, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You've heard this story before. And you know anything about that Jewish history? They, they hated Caesar. Um, it, it was a really interesting thing. After, after they got their independence from the Seleucid Empire, they immediately started a civil war over who was going to be, get to be in charge. And um, that civil war raged and raged and raged forever during the intertestamental period. And finally what they did is they went and invited the Romans to come in to settle everybody down. And the Romans came and they just stayed. Well, they realized that that was a mistake. And so they hated the Romans. The Romans only wanted two things. They wanted taxes because it was really expensive to maintain an empire, and they took a lot of taxes. That's why tax gatherers were hated. And the second thing is that they wanted peace. More than anything else, they hated riots. And when they would come down, they would just, they, they would go in and they would just wipe everybody out to say, this is what happens when you guys disturb the peace. Disturbing the peace carried a death penalty. Sometimes they would come into a, a country, I'm getting off on a tangent right now. You ever heard the word decimate? You know what decimate means? Pick every 10th person and they'd crucify them. That's what it means to decimate. And everyone could see that's what happens when you disturb the peace of Rome. So they hated the Romans. And so anybody who supported 
that financially. They thought they had Jesus. And they, he says, show me a coin. And you know the story. Whose image and likeness is it? Well, it's Caesar's. Just give it to him. But that doesn't mean you don't give to God what's God's. That was brilliant. That was a characteristic of Christ. The way he would come up with stuff that was just so, he'd pivot on uh, Another one like the Sadducees came to him and they said, they gave him the whole story about the resurrection from the dead and the woman who had seven husbands. And, uh, you know, at about husband number three, if I was the next brother, I'd be thinking twice about marrying her. Uh, uh, never mind, you have to read the story. But uh, those of you who know the, know the joke. But the point is that Jesus had such nimbleness in his mind. You say, well, he was God. Oh, yeah. But we are still, we're told we have the mind of Christ. We still need to be people who are obedient. And when we are dragged down with anger and anxiety, our brains and our minds are not free to be creative and resilient and worshipful and joyful. That's what we call mental flexibility. Fourth one. Well, I want to say one more thing about mental flexibility. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know where it says... Um, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know that scripture? And he says, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship? The word there for spiritual is not pneumos. It's logikon or logical service of worship. It's a well-thought-out approach to life and worship. Fourth one, work excellence. We have a saying at the mission, skill and a good interview will get you a job. Character and excellence will keep your job. Skill and a good interview will get you a job. Character and excellence will keep your job. Because skills can be taught to anybody. But character and excellence are most important. We're going to be credible witnesses of Jesus Christ in a the world. Then we need to have work excellence. Favorite verse uh, people go to is Colossians three twenty three and twenty four. Do all your work heartily as unto the Lord. Tells us what to do, but not why. I like what it says in First Peter two verse twelve, and. Um, we, you already have your, your scripture open to that. Verse 12, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable or excellent so that when they speak against you as evildoers, pause right there. Not if they speak against you, when they speak against you. If you are a conf confessed believer of Jesus Christ, the world will speak in an evil way about you. Just expect it. When they speak evil of you, and they're going to, if your work is honorable or excellent, 
they may see your good deeds. And by the way, there are two words for good in the, in the New Testament. Agathos means morally good. Kalos means beautiful or excellent. And the word here is kalos. They may see your excellent work. And what they will do is they will glorify God or they will praise God. And this is really interesting. On the day of visitation, and he uses the word episkopos, which is the word also for bishop or elder. <coughs> and he's, what he's talking about is at the return of the Lord, when Jesus returns and he'll reveal everything, what the unbelievers will say is we, we may not have liked those Christians, but you know what? They sure were excellent people. They will glorify God about you when the Lord confronts them. That's an amazing thought, that the excellence of your work is accruing in heaven, and on the day of visitation, God will reveal it so that unbelievers will say, those people were excellent. And that's all going to happen when Jesus comes back. Even little stuff like work matters. And so that's why we think the development of Christian character includes work excellence. It's the same thing in Matthew 5, the salt and light passage. People constantly misinterpret this passage, but four metaphors. You know, you're a food, you're a light, you're a city, you're a basket. The whole point is that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Same thing. Fifth one, the stewardship of ourselves. I talked about this earlier. Uh, secular psychology tells us about loving self. Well, the Bible does talk about that in Ephesians. It talks about, uh, about a husband who loves his wife, loves himself. Um, well, but the self-love that they're talking about uh, in our culture today is not that kind of love. It's a, it's a self-preoccupation, a preoccupation with me. That is not a biblical concept. The biblical concept or the Christ-like concept of the concept of self is a stewardship of something that we've been given as a gift and we need to get the most out of it as we possibly can while we are here on our sojourn on earth. Peter talks about that. We're here as strangers and aliens. We are renters in our bodies. This is particularly, uh, uh, particularly important to uh, our homeless and addicted crowd because uh, constantly they're dealing with stuff that they're putting in their bodies or the wrong stuff, uh, whether it's food or sleep or exercise or disease or drugs, there is a stewardship that God has given us that we are obligated to carry out. And I, I know for a fact that none of us have got that nailed down. Um, we are all renters in this body. Second Corinthians 4 says that. We're like clay vessels. And he says something interesting in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we carry about in us the dying of Jesus so that you might live. It's a really interesting 
metaphor that he uses there. He says, okay, we're like a bunch of clay pots, which are just common things, but we've got something really, really, really valuable about it inside of us, (coughs) which is the death of Jesus, and the result of the death of Jesus is life, eternal life. And so at the same time we're dying, we're caring about the death of Jesus, which produces life in you and ultimately life in us. It's this, it's this sort of a difficult, I shouldn't say difficult, what word am I searching for? It's a um, thing that means the same thing and something opposite at the same time. Paradox. All right, sorry. I was up late last night. It's this paradoxical situation where we are living and dying all at the same time. But when you recognize that your body is wearing out on a daily basis, when you're young, you don't experience that as much. When you get older, you experience it every day. And you say, okay, this container is starting to get cracks and leaks and it's pretty soon I'm going to give it back so I can get my new body that's eternal and will never die. That sort of gives you a sense of living your life fearlessly and with abandon. To say, okay, uh, I've got life in me And the thing that I have to remind myself of every day is that the life in me comes from Jesus and that I'm wearing out every day. I need to steward this thing as long as I can, get as much mileage out of it as I possibly can for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the people I shepherd, the sake of the people I lead, for the sake of Christ. Stewardship of the body is critical The stewardship of self is critical as one of the marks of spiritual maturity. It's self-regulation. That's the number one thing that addicted, homeless folks lack is self-regulation. Self-regulation is what allows you to prosper. It allows you to live. Of knowing what to say no to and when to say no to and what to do and when to do it. The regulation of self. And by the way, that is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Typically in Greek, the first and the last in a list are the ones that are the most important. Self-control. What that brings you back then to is spiritual maturity. How can I have self-control to know Christ, to know the gospel, to be preaching the gospel, to be filled with the Spirit, then I can become emotionally resilient because I'm not anxious about what's going to happen all the time. Um, Jesus says all the time, lay down your anxiety, throw it off. Um, Peter says it in, a, in another place here in First Peter. He said, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Um, the interesting thing is the word anxiety and care are the same word. Casting all your worries, uh, all your cares on him. And it uses a word like uh, you take a a load off yourself and stick it on a pack animal. 
He said, taking my anxiety off every day, and we are surrounded by anxiety, unloading that onto Christ because he cares for you. So when you're not emotionally charged, but you're resilient, then you can have freedom and joy and flexibility, uh, and then you can take joy in the excellence in the work you do and that people will glorify your Father who is in heaven and that you steward your body to the last moment and to the last ounce of your energy so that people will come to Christ and that will make you more mature. And we just want to put people on that circle going round and round and round again. We think that that is a key to their future success as a believer. And so that's our new venture. Uh, We've deployed that into the mission. Um, That's going to become part of everything we do. And um, it's doing that already. It's made tremendous changes at the mission. I I hope me sharing that with you came across as it's something valuable. And if it's something that you can take for yourselves, please do so. And it's not meant to be critical of anything else, but those are the five marks of developing Christian character that we think are the distillation of what the New Testament says of the things that we can use um, that are easy to remember, they're easy to teach, and that will just do that over and over and over again. I'm going to start a training pretty soon where we're going to take each one of these in the, in the mission. We're going to expand that and train our staff on that and uh, make sure that becomes part of all of our chapels and all of our devotionals and every message that we send. So I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to be here. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are in heaven running the universe and we don't have to worry about anything. You are in charge. We can cast our anxiety on you. We know that you care for us in a way that we can't even care for ourselves. Lord, give us uh, the strength and the courage to be joyful, to be excellent, and to expectantly wait your return with hope in our hearts at all times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, everyone.